0: As a rider, you probably already understand the value of being extra alert while riding a motorcycle down the road, especially in traffic, and giving yourself that time to react to what drivers do on the road. But reacting is high stress, and there's the delay. The delay from your brain seeing what happened, understanding what happened, and then coming up with some sort of defensive maneuver. But what if we could predict what is going to happen next? What if when a driver decided to do something crazy, you were already anticipating it and already had a plan? Then instead of it being an, oh no, I can't believe they just did that, it would be more like, well, I saw that one coming. Like seeing into the future. Well, today on our exclusive Rider Skills program, that's what we're going to learn to do. Look into the future and predict what may happen as we ride down the road, I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. It's, it's Simon Simon has prepared us, Charlie Borman, Chris Birch,
1: Elizabeth Martin, Linton Smith, Vanna Smith, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Adventure Rider Radio.
0: Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters, cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Rider Skills is an exclusive program we developed here at Adventure Rider Radio designed to give you tools that can improve your riding skills both on and off-road. Now, of course, these segments are not meant to be a substitute for professional training. These are ideas and concepts that should you choose to try, you're doing so at your own risk. Now, today for our exclusive rider skills, we have Clinton Smout back once again. Clinton is the chief instructor at Smart Adventures in Ontario, Canada. Clinton, welcome back. Hi, Jim. How are things there? Very well. Middle
1: of winter. You're you're probably are you looking at the bikes yet? Uh, We're just you know on that. Cusp of snowmobiles are still going, but there's not a lot of snow here. So we'll be parking them within the next few weeks, probably. And we won't open till maybe late April. But, you know, there's always new tires to put on. Check dirt bikes over. Uh, We'll get the new fleet of BMWs over the next few weeks, I'm told. Uh, I'm picking one up for the motorcycle show in Toronto which starts, uh, I set up the booth tomorrow. So that's exciting for the mm. weekend.
0: Today, we're going to talk about situational awareness and using the information that we gather while riding to help us sort of predict what's going to happen next, or at least help predict what could happen next. And, and that will make us safer riders, naturally. I know you have many tips for us today, so this should be fun to, to go through. We're going to be focusing on road riding today. So um, we're going to deal with, like I guess, traffic in particular.
1: Yeah, because I think uh, every adventure rider ends up in a town or a city or on a paved highway at some point, even if you're traveling around the world. It's not old gravel. We're normally talking about mud and hills and how to go over logs. But we've got to ride pavement to get to those places. So maybe some things I've learned from more experienced street riders and instructors um, we could talk about a few of those tips. Okay. Yeah,
0: no, that's great. And you also, I mean, you used to train, you used to do rider safety programs yourself, didn't
1: you? Yeah, that was kind of my start of teaching in 1983. Oh my God, Jim, that was 40 years ago. 83. Wow. That's a long time ago. What we had to do in the morning was, you know, get the fire going, get the steam built up in the bikes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. uh, no, I was, uh, a really, it was a fun job teaching new riders on pavement. And then I did that for 23 years. But once my wife and I had children, they wanted to follow me into the forest on dirt bikes. And I thought, I really believe you shouldn't try and teach loved ones. I've failed miserably. <laughs> I don't know if I told you the story about I heard a car door slam, and that was my wife <laughs> leaving. And all I said was, it'll be dark by the time that guy gets here because she was very hesitant moving off. Wait a second, you're, you're, you're teaching your wife to drive? Is that what you're doing? Yeah, it was a stick shift little truck. And it was almost new to me anyway. And she's waiting and waiting and I'm looking, there's nothing coming. And she said, no, there's a car. And I squinted. No, it, it probably wasn't the proper response, but I said, it'll be dark by the time that guy gets here. And I heard a door slam, and that was it for me as a driver trainer. <laughs> for for a loved one, which, yes. uh, which
0: makes perfect sense. <laughs> okay, uh, so for motorcycles, where do you want to start with What's What's the first thing that comes to mind that we would talk about?
1: Well, if you're coming off the highway into a street zone, city streets, There's a huge difference in speed, but if you've been droning along, I used to commute to Toronto, which is an hour, hour and 20 minutes. So you're doing, you know, the speed limit or a little bit more, and then you just take an off ramp and all of a sudden you're supposed to be doing 30 miles an hour, 50 kilometers an hour. So that speed acclimation, um, I had to be aware of, because I used to get the odd pullover from a police officer because I was doing 25 over the posted speed limit, because it feels like you could almost jump off and run beside your bike yeah. when you come from highway to city. So that was something that when, you know, new riders, when my son started riding, I said, "That's something to be aware of, guys. You just get in that zone and drone of the engine and the wind it's you've got to be really aware and also change kind of your alertness so we're adventure riding we're you know it's about a five hour ride towards Dawson City in the Yukon in the far north and you may see three or four vehicles on the way but once you get in the city it's way more congested Way more stress because people are, are, you know, leaving work, getting to work, trying to get out of the gas station. So we've always said, you know, slow down and be on high alert. Mm, yeah. The world needs more alerts.
0: Makes sense. Yep. No, definitely. Okay. So what else?
1: So I practice that breathe on the front brake tip. Um, It's a David Huff concept that I've adapted to my own writing. But the idea is most of us, I don't know about you, Jim, but I'm probably doing 10 or 15 kilometers an hour over the posted speed limit. But in the city, when I'm approaching an intersection, that's one place I really try to do the posted speed. And I'll tell you why. Because I know if I drop it down to 30 miles an hour, 50 kilometers an hour, I've got more time to react if something happens. I've got more distance to stop in or take an evasive mover like swerving. So in order to scrub off my speed, you know, I think as a kid, I probably used to just turn the throttle back and it would slow down but a safety tip I picked up is the car following you doesn't see a brake light and they may get way too close to you if you just use the throttle to slow down. So I don't use the rear brake. What I do on the approach of an intersection is two fingers on my right hand snake out and I breathe on my front brake. I haven't even shut the gas off. I'm the throttle off. I'm just breathing on the front brake. And a few things that are really neat happen. One, there's a little forward shift in weight transfer. My front suspension compresses a little bit. I'm not hammering on the brake, just two fingers breathing. My brake light goes on, which tells people that are following me, hey, I might have to do something up here. That may take their foot out of their gas pedal or they may change lanes. Why is this idiot slowing down? But with the weight transfer and the brake light, I'm in a better position safe-wise. So if something happens, my hand is already on the brake, my brain is in braking mode, so I'm faster getting on to a harder brake application than if I was just you know riding towards the intersection with my hand on the throttle, So okay. we call it breathe on the front brake. It makes
0: sense because we, we all understand intersections are where things happen. You know, vehicles coming and, and going or crossing our path, and it, it is the section where that, that spot on the highway that's one of the most dangerous. One thing with your motorcycle, and I don't know if this has just been my experience, but you want to check when your brake light comes on for how much brake pressure you're putting on. Have you had that happen? Where you put a bit of pressure on, it doesn't put the light on?
1: Exactly. So the front brake application, the brake light application with your front lever, on most bikes, that's not adjustable. But your foot brake, there's usually a spring or some kind of a hook. So when you push down on your brake, it pulls a pin out of the brake light actuator. And that has a plastic knurled knob on Japanese bikes. And it's actually threaded. So you got to use a little wrench on German bikes. And the idea is you can adjust the sensitivity. So if you have to, you know, you're locking up your back wheel and then the brake comes on, that's not good. Mm. Because I like tapping my rear brake. If I look in my mirror and I see a dog, but it's on the hood of a truck. You know those trucks? Is it a Mac that has the bulldog oh, right. on the front? Yeah. If all I see is in the mirror, I'm not tapping the brakes. He's way too close. Probably can't even see the brake light. But if someone is a little bit behind me and I'm, they're closer than I feel comfortable, I might tap the brake light as a little warning. Hey, back off. Mm-hmm. That and was the- one of my tips to talk about later. Sorry, go ahead, Jim.
0: No, I was just going to say that, and and the thing is with your choice of brakes there, the reason you're tapping your rear brakes is because your brake light comes on quicker with less pressure. And you also get a different effect as we know, because you've talked about this before, you put on your front brakes, you got a lot of stopping power. You put on your back brakes, you have much less stopping power. And in a situation like that, that's what you want. You, like you said, you don't want to put on a lot of brake power if you use your fronts that's going to put on some brake power by the time you get that light to come on. And that's going to slow you down. And as you said, the truck's too close to you.
1: Yes. Yes. Um, Just to carry that thought a little further, we don't advocate that anybody does anything that would cause, you know, road rage. Or some people get so distracted with tailgaters that their vision and focus is not in the important place, which is, you know, in front of you not behind you. So if you're a new rider on the street, guaranteed somebody's going to really peeve you off um, by doing something dangerous towards you. They may be cutting you off. It might be following too close. Part of or the percentage, I don't know what it is, but some of those people, they weren't malicious. They're not trying to kill you. They probably didn't even see you, which we've addressed before. Car drivers don't see us. Mm-hmm. You know, I wear a bright orange helmet with a retro reflective vest and I've still had people cut me off. Oh, sorry, buddy. Didn't see you there. Yeah, <laughs> The headlights on. <laughs> so if you get angry to the point where you lose focus, now you're the problem. You're dangerous. Or other rude road users see you giving the finger to the idiot in the car, they think, well, there's another motorcyclist, disrespectful, Yahoo, you know, we're, we're all painted. So I tried to tell my sons, you know, people are, it's going to happen. If you can pull over, count to 10, you know, if it makes you feel better, memorize their license plate and you can make a complaint Uh, The police may follow up if they don't have a lot to do, depending on, you know, if you did that in Toronto, it wouldn't result in a police checking up unless there was an actual crash. If you were injured or, you know, an infraction like that, then they would follow up that tip. Mm. But the worst thing you can do, and I remember reading about it in the paper, a motorcyclist with a passenger was coming up an on ramp to an elevated highway in Toronto. One of the highways called the Gardner Expressways, 30 feet above ground level on big pedestals. And it was a way to get congestion for traffic coming in and out of the city. So as this bike is pulling up on to try to merge into the slow lane, of a three-lane highway, the car driver, which I've seen sometimes, they didn't want to let him in, so they sped up. And the motorcyclist reacted with anger. He kicked the passenger door of the car. The car driver, equally idiotic, did a violent swerve to the right after he realized his car had been kicked. So that violent swerve put the motorcycle, the rider, and the passenger over the guardrail of the elevated highway. And sadly, they both died on the impact 30 feet because there was a lot of traffic on the roadway called Lakeshore directly below them. So it was road rage on both cases. Uh, witnesses led to the arrest of the offending car driver, but that's a little late.
2: Yeah. You know,
1: even if if reaction doesn't end up with you dying, you could get severely injured. So you drag your leg into court and say, yes, Your Honor, it was his fault. That's a little late. Yeah. No, that's... So it-
0: and 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 you it's easy to forget just how vulnerable you are on a motorcycle i mean yeah. it's it's not the vehicle that you want to start a road rage thing on you know no. the right of weight,
1: not the right of way mm. explain that <laughs> yeah, so at an intersection, let's say it's a four way stop. there's four stop signs intersecting roads, four vehicles arrive at the stop sign at exactly the same time? This is a little trivia question for you, Jim, mm-hmm. and the listeners. If everyone arrives at exactly the same time, who has the right of way?
0: Well, because normally it's the person on the right, but if they've all arrived at the same time, I'm assuming, and I'm cheating here, but I'm assuming what you're going to say is the biggest
1: vehicle has the right of way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because most people respond with as you did. You know, it's the guy on your right. Everyone has someone on their right. So if you, the skinny little motorcycle against vans, cars, and trucks, if you think it's your turn, that could go very badly. Mm. So the right of weight to me is more important than my legal right of way. I'm going to let them go. You just have to be careful with signals. I don't know if I've told you it before, but in my little town, there is a four-way stop. I pulled up first, stopped my bike. A car pulled up right afterwards. So I'm thinking, looking across from to him at the other side of the intersection, is he thinking I'm going to go or is he thinking he's going to go? Because he's got his left turn signal on, and I'm going to go straight. So I saw him wave his hand. and I thought, fantastic. What a nice, courteous guy. I move off. Thank God I was just slipping the clutch. And he pulls out and I hammered on the brake, almost dropped my bike, and he had his window down. And I said, did you not just wave me on? And his reply was, mosquito. <laughs> He wasn't waving me on. he was hardly he was, paying attention at the intersection, yeah. He was yeah. swatting a mosquito and almost ran me over
0: wow, and and so many times in that situation, though, when someone pulls up is I often find nowadays is people think that if they're in more of a hurry, they get to go ahead of you, so instead of actually stopping at the at the stop where they should, they sort of drive through it and cut you off to try and get ahead of you, sort of yeah,
1: and again, you're going to lose that battle, yeah it kind of segues into another tip I had when I was 16, 17, you have to appreciate I'd already ridden for 10 years off road and everywhere I went in, you know, on the dirt roads around my house, I went as fast as I could. So when I got on the street, I had kind of that same attitude, go as fast as you could. Mm. So when that light turned green, it was like a drag strip. You know how the lights go down and then it goes green and the race cars take off? That was me. I was across that intersection before anybody else moved. But now I realized it was a really risky, stupid idea. Now, what I do is I let traffic settle for a couple of seconds. And I let, let's say there's a car or truck on my left in another lane. I let them be the blocker. Let your friend go first. Yeah. So me, skinny little motorcycle rider, I'm going to let a car move off first. So if anybody runs the red light, which apparently that happens now, have you heard of this, Jim?
0: (laughs) Yeah, it happens far more than
1: I've ever seen in my lifetime. Yeah. So they have. uh, They've added. I was just in Calgary last weekend, uh, the middle of Canada, Western Canada for a bike show and they have red light cameras so if you have your gps on you know maps google maps or something it was warning us red light camera up ahead so they're starting to do that in toronto as well and that's a good thing that'll that'll save lives if it makes people stop
0: yeah. People are, are definitely pushing everything I find now, certainly where I live anyway, they're, they're pushing all the lights, you know, light turns yellow and, uh, they just keep pushing through on advances, all of that. And, uh, like in a vehicle, it's one thing, but on a motorcycle, I have to say that in, in recent years, I've found myself feeling much more vulnerable on the motorcycle than what I did in previous years uh, due to the fact that people are so incredibly
1: aggressive. Yeah. Um, a police officer buddy of mine said, "Distracted driving is the cause of more accidents than drunk driving." Wow, I believe and that. I, I that's near- in Canada. I don't know about the rest of the world, but is that right? Yeah. Every day
0: that I'm out, almost every day, almost every time that I'm out, I will pass someone who appears to be looking at a, a cell phone. With, yes, you know, still. and they do that, you know, that thing with it. And it's very obvious. I don't know why people don't realize when they're doing it, you pull the chin back to the chest and try yes. and look down like nonchalantly. <laughs> and it's very obvious yeah. that that physical position that you're in, that you're looking at your phone. But it'll be, I've even seen it at intersections. At one intersection, I don't know if I told you this one, I, I saw a guy had a movie going on his on phone oh, for himself. There were no passengers. Yeah. It was at night. And it was very easy to see in the car. So.
1: Crazy. Yeah. And you can kind of tell them, can't you? If you're riding behind that car, it weaves a little. Yeah. Every now and then. And then their eyes go back up and they correct their lane position. So they're either drunk or they're on their phone. Mm-hmm. And a couple summers ago, I'm on my bike heading to work, and I'm in the left lane, because I've got a turn, you know, a couple kilometers ahead. And there's a car in the right lane, but there, I was thinking to myself, okay, pick a lane because they're, sometimes they're half into my lane, then they wander back. There's a lot of wandering. And I thought this idiot's on their phone or they're drunk. So I thought I'm out of here because they were going below the speed limit anyway. So I lit the bike up a bit, and I went as far over to the left as I could without being in oncoming traffic. I passed this car and I glanced over and the driver was on their phone and there's this beautiful golden retriever sitting upright in the passenger seat. So just as I go to pass, she's on her phone looking down Doesn't she wander into my lane? If I'd been in the left, or sorry, the right tire track of the left lane, she would have hit me. So I got on the horn and that startled the daylights out of her. Her head came up and she stared over at me. And by that time I was gone. So maybe two kilometers further was a red light. I got to stop and I'm waiting to turn left. So the same car pulls up beside me and I look over the window comes down and I thought, oh, the driver's going to apologize for sure. No, no, still on the phone and yelling at me for being so rude as to beeping the horn. And I thought, you know, the light's going to change. I don't have time to explain what she's doing is idiotic and unsafe. So I just said, I think you should let your dog drive, he looks far more intelligent. <laughs> and then I left. <laughs> Probably rude to say. But I, I see, and freak. also
0: risky because you, you never know, you set off the wrong person. It goes right back to what we're talking about. This road rage yes. thing
1: while you're on a motorcycle, of course. But yeah, uh, what a hypocrite I am. I yeah. just told everybody, don't do that. And then I did it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, well, I don't I think it was actually, door. I don't think there was actually
0: road rage, but you know, you should certainly give your, leave yourself open because that's the thing nowadays. It doesn't take too much for some people. I mean, you just don't know who's out there driving and people tend to, to really react. You hear these stories yes. in the news all the time, you know, where something happens and somebody just goes ballistic you don't want to do deal with that on a motorcycle no. like this. And the thing is with cars is cars accelerate very fast now. So do you think you're going to get away on the average adventure bike? Well, maybe not, uh, Probably not quite. Not. And, and who wants to try, you know? No, exactly. Exactly. Uh, Just a quick break while I tell you about two things, then we're going to be right back with more. Stay with us. Rene Cormier is a well known adventure traveler. We had him on the show, actually, one of the first shows we did almost 10 years ago. Rene takes what he learned on his trip, four and a half years on the road, traveling around the world by motorcycle. And he puts that into the trips that he's been running for the past 14 years as Renadian adventures and Africa, Africa is one of his top destinations. And despite Africa being one of those places that a lot of riders say is super tough, René says that their African trips, the Renadian trips are the most vacation-y style trips of all their guided tours. And they do them all over the place. Renee says they have nice adventures during the day and lots of comfort at night. The routes can be all paved with some gravel sections and Renee says Africa is safe to travel because they ride in rural areas and spend nights in really upmarket lodges. Great value, luxury lodges, great food and wine. He also says that riders who are new to international touring will find Africa as a great starting destination. And let's face it, Africa has so much to offer. I mean, we hear the stories here on Adventure Rider Radio. Renadian Adventures has new bikes to rent. They've got a full-time crew based in Cape Town to help with planning. And For those who might want to take a non-rider with them, you can. Renadian Adventures is pillion-friendly, meaning the roads are not only okay for pillions, but their itineraries are built for activities and scenery that are meant for pillions as well. And as always in Africa, they've got a chase truck that follows the group. So if the pillion needs to take a break or has a tummy bug or something, they go into that chase truck. And every year, apparently, there ends up being a spouse who attends only in the chase van. They want to see Victoria Falls, go on safari, stay in the luxury lodges, but they have zero interest from doing that at the back seat of a motorcycle. And that's okay with Renadian. Renadianadventures.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. And you got to check out their brochure, the 2024 brochure. Renadianadventures.com. Two people packed up with all their gear on a KTM, two up, the driver wearing a cast on his wrist. That's really the beginning of this incredible invention I love so much, the Atlas Throttle Lock, because it was that trip that I'm talking about, that KTM 2-Up, that was the catalyst for Heidi and David Winters to go through all the work of designing and building the most incredible throttle lock in the world. This is a piece of craftsmanship that makes riding more fun and possibly even a safer thing to do. The Atlas Throttle Lock changed the way I ride, both long and short trips. It's a beautifully machined device that clamps onto your handlebar in seconds. It's solid. It's made like a Swiss watch. There's two buttons on it, one for engage and the other for disengage. And they provide a tactile feedback that you can feel even through your gloves. So you don't have to look down. You know what you're doing just by touch. And that's key. It just works beautifully to hold your throttle position. If you need more, you roll on a little more throttle, it holds a new position. You want less, you back off the throttle, it holds a new position. No need to disengage. And every time you use it, it releases the tension on your fingers, your hand, your wrist, your forearm, even your arm muscles. And if you're more comfortable, that means less fatigue. Less fatigue means a safer ride. Another bonus is the Atlas Throttle Lock easily moves from one bike to another. It's very simple to take it on and off. Seriously, I think it will change the way you ride. AtlasThrottleLock.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. AtlasThrottleLock.com. But you are going to mention also, you you were going to talk
1: about traffic patterns. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Um, It's something that comes with experience, but if your head is up... Vision-wise, you're really looking down the road in front of you. Maybe it's multi-lanes. There's two lanes in the city street that you're on. You can anticipate with some experience, you can anticipate what's going to happen when you see certain things. For instance, you're in the, let's call it the right lane or slow lane. And I apologize to your listeners in Bermuda, Britain, Australia. Where else is it the other side of the road, Jim? Oh, parts of Africa. Uh, South Africa is the other side of the road. Mm. So I won't say they're right or wrong, but you can appreciate there's two lanes going in front of you, wherever you are. If there's six cars in the left lane and there's only one car in the right lane and you're in the right lane, now there's, you see the yellow light go on which is just before the red light for the intersection, I think you should anticipate that one of those cars that's piled up behind the group of six is not want to be held up. So they're going to cut and lane change sharply to the right, right in front of you, maybe without shoulder checking. And if they don't see you, maybe you're in their blind spot, which is something we can talk about, then you're going to get hit or cut off and you have to hammer the brakes on to avoid hitting them. But uh, instead of being a reactive driver, just waiting till you get cut off, looking at that traffic pattern, I think it's safe to anticipate a car is going to change lanes quickly just so they can get closer to the intersection and get home six seconds faster.
0: Mm-hmm. That's something, of course, that, would, that helps us in, in our car or truck, as well as on the motorcycle. It's something you should always be aware of, but I think in particular on the, on the motorcycle, it makes a big difference because we have so much more to lose. But that whole thing of reading the scene, right, Like, is exactly what you're yes. talking about. And, and not just even right there, but the entire time, always trying to anticipate what's, what's going to
1: happen, right, as, as you're going along. Yep. Exactly the same scenario. You're in the left lane, lots of traffic, and you're scanning left to right. You're looking way down the road, further than most drivers. And you see a garbage truck with its flashing lights on in the right lane. You know what's going to be stopping. You can anticipate everybody behind them is going to be peeved off and frustrated. Oh my God, I have to I'm stuck behind the school bus or the garbage truck. I've got to cut to the left to go around them quickly. And if you see the truck and anticipate that that is a possibility of happening, you can prepare for it. Mm -hmm. And in preparing, you might uh, cover your front brake, put a brake on, slow down a little, give them more space to cut, or maybe change your tire track further away from that impending vehicle that's going to cut you off. All those things you can do in advance. And if they don't cut you off, great, no harm done. But if they do, then you have less time and space to react in. You tell riders
0: not to stop close behind a vehicle that's in front of you. Why?
1: Yeah, we've always taught that. And the idea is... And it came out of that survey we've talked about before that I did. I, I looked at the statistics of fatalities in Metro Toronto over a 20-year period. And it was along the lines of how Dr. Hurt made his report that we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. And that's a great read if listeners need something to read. It's not gory or gross. It's fascinating stuff. The Hurt Report from the early 70s. But um, what I found in this analysis was the third reason of not making it home, and all your family and friends are at a memorial service for you. The third highest causation was being hit from behind. So when you're stopping in traffic, a couple things have a quick glance at your mirror. When you're approaching a stop, just to make sure if somebody's right on your back tail light, and when you stop, leave a bike and a half or a car length in front of you between your front tire and the rear bumper of the car in front of you. And the idea is you've left yourself an out. Many riders and drivers pull right up two feet behind. The vehicle that's in front of them. Then, let's say you shoulder checked or looked in your mirror, and you see a car out of control, or maybe a distracted driver, not even looking, and uh, you've you've got time to kiss something goodbye. You can't swerve around the vehicle in front of you. You can't get out of there, and you're extremely vulnerable on a motorcycle when hit from behind. Mm -hmm. So. What I did once in Toronto, I was dropping off film. I used to be a photographer at a lab. So it was 6.30 in the morning, because I wanted to beat all the crazy rush hour traffic. A light turned red. Car in front of me stopped. I slowed down. I looked in my mirror just as I was stopping. And I see a taxi cab coming at me sideways. So he's hammered on the brakes. This was mid 80s. So no ABS. He's tried to swerve and hammer the brakes. So the taxi's actually coming at me sideways. So I had yeah. in first gear, which I recommend if you're just stopping momentarily. And I launched my bike because I'd left room in front of me. And I pulled up between the two lanes of traffic, just as the taxi slammed into the car it was stopped in front of me. Wow! So we taught that at basic rider training. So being an instructor, um, you know, you demonstrate certain things. You talk about it. It becomes part of your riding psyche, if you will. My riding habits are the safety stuff I preached about for forty years. So that one saved me and my bike. That's why you should never stop right behind the person in front of you.
0: There's also the, the vision thing too, right? Because you've talked about that before, about how when you pull up behind someone, it changes your perspective. It changes what
1: you can see because you've got something in front of you. Yeah. Uh, let's say it's a van. You can't see around it. So I like backing off a little bit. The odd time a car will pass you and pull into that big space you left, well, that's, that's a risk. It's not dangerous, but I don't like following big vehicles that I can't see past. That's just too sketchy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And and you you're,
0: all you have to do is back up. You have a much better view of what's coming up, particularly if you're if you're going to pass. But also, uh, we talked about this before. I, mean, I gave my example of following a truck too closely. They run over a tire, and I hit the tire. You know, and and that that sort of stuff is is just so possible. And as
1: again, yes. on the bike, we're vulnerable. Yeah, bigger vehicles won't swerve for a deer carcass. They'll just straddle it mm. or a tire carcass. And if you're really close behind them, almost drafting them, you'll save a little on fuel, but you don't have reaction time for swerving or braking if the obstacle just appears from under the truck. So yeah, great idea. So what else do you have? Um I wonder, you know what I mean when I say a blind spot? You're in your Jeep, you're looking in your side mirror. That side mirror doesn't illuminate or give you the view of the entire lane beside you. Mm -hmm. So there's an old saying that if you're on your bike and you're just behind another vehicle, if you can't see the driver's face in their door mirror they can't see you if they're using just their mirror as a determination of whether they should change lanes or not so a blind spot is a spot that's visually the operator of the vehicle can't see other vehicles in and a motorcycle's you know it's bigger it's smaller than a smart car, you know, those little tiny cars. So we fall into blind spots of more than any other vehicle on the road. Uh, Transport trucks have the largest blind spot. There's a part where if you're directly in front of the cab, that truck driver probably can't see you. And if you're beside the truck, often their mirrors can't see you. So you've got to be really careful around trucks. Give them a wide berth when passing and don't follow them. Mm -hmm. It's nothing against truck drivers. They're probably the most experienced road users out there, but their vehicle itself is inherently dangerous to motorcyclists. The wind blast alone, you know, this big rectangular box is pushing a lot of air down the road at highway speeds so when you go to past, the wind buffeting can have a dramatic effect on your balance and steering.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: The, and the other one with that is where you're you're actually fighting a crosswind, you know, you'll be countering a crosswind and you do it automatically, it's not a big deal. But when a truck passes up wind of you, it all of a sudden blocks that wind and you find yourself leaning into this oncoming truck
1: Yes, only because of the lack of wind that was holding you up before. Exactly. So, yeah, love trucks. they deliver everything pretty well that I buy, probably, but um, I'm a little nervous around them when I'm on the mo- uh, my bike more so than my pickup truck
0: you you mentioned the the blind spot that all vehicles have, so that the it's really often it's the it's the um the spot that's missed between your rear view mirror and your side mirror. That's where you can't see, but vehicles have all yes. kinds of them. It's surprising some of the vehicles you drive and you look at them, you you think that that is a huge blind spot in the back. And of course, modern vehicles, many modern vehicles have sensors out the side. They've got a little light that lights up on the mirror that tells you that there's a vehicle aside. I'm sure we've all seen that as you're going down the road, if you don't have a vehicle that does that already. But um, I don't want to count on that as a rider.
1: No. Um, This truck I bought recently, I had to wait 11 months for it. But my, my old Toyota truck that I loved, the rad hose went two kilometers from work. And I thought, well, you know, I'll turn the heater on. That'll take heat off the engine and I'll drive to work. Oh my goodness, Jim, I should have walked. By the time (laughs) I pulled in the driveway, it sounded like a bag of hammers in the engine. I warped the head and it wasn't fixable. It wasn't worth fixing. Mm. So I sold it as is and I ordered a new Toyota truck, which took 11 months. And my, you know, of course, I didn't read the owner's manual as much as I should. So I'm driving along at night, and my high beams kept going up and down because it sensed cars were coming. And then I went to change lanes. If you don't use the turn signal, it beeps like crazy. They're almost autonomous. It's getting more and more that way. So The truck's smarter than I am, Jim.
0: So it beeps at you telling you that you're not using your signal to change lanes or that you're changing lanes.
1: What what it's thinking is that you've fallen asleep or maybe you're on your phone and you're wandering. So it's alerting you to that. Oh, so these vehicles make
0: it so that it's safer to use your phone while you drive.
1: Well, I guess. (laughs) Maybe have a drink. I don't (laughs) know. That's right. (laughs) But what I noticed was Um, My son blessed me on the way home from work in the fall. And even though he was very, very close to me, the sensor alerting me that another vehicle was close didn't pick up on the mass of the motorcycle. Oh, wow. So as, as riders, you know, as more and more modern cars with this autonomous systems, not all of them will pick up on motorcycles. So we, should be, we shouldn't rely on that anyway.
0: Yeah, that, that makes sense. Well, it's a scary thought sort of stuff. And that's all of what you're talking about here is, is anticipation, not depending on anyone, the actions of anyone, not expecting them to do what you think they should do. You, you've got to sort of read into it. I know we're going to talk a little bit more about that coming up. But, so yeah. what else? What's next?
1: Uh, choosing the proper tire track in your lane. You know, if it's a single lane going down the road, traffic behind you, traffic in front of you, we've always thought the left tire track on this side of the globe is your best bet. So, because, so let, me just
0: inter- let me just interject yeah, there. So what? whatever tire track is closest to the center line of the road.
1: Yes. So, um, you know, in North America, we're sitting in our car on the left side. So if we're on our bike, that's where your tire track choice should be, the left one. And the reason here we don't recommend it is if you're in the right tire track close to the sidewalk or the ditch, it's an invitation for many drivers who want to go faster than you to pass you within your own lane. So the left tire track is a good blocking position, we call it, where people will be less likely to pass you on the throttle side of your bike. Mm-hmm. but they're they're more likely to pass you on the left if you're not blocking them. The other advantage is you've got better vision up and over vehicles in front of you if you're in the left tire track, a foot to the left of the center of the lane, and you can move out even a little further left for better vision. You're also in one of the tire tracks of most road users. And that heats up the pavement. If you're the chucklehead riding right up the middle, that's the coldest part of the road. Even on a summer morning, you know, it's a nice day. There's less traction there. Plus there's less traction. The stuff that drips out of the majority of vehicles, which are four wheels or more, it's coming out of an engine or an exhaust or transmission that's often in the center of the vehicle. Oil pans, rad hose draining, stuff like that. So, plus, the center of the road, there's no power tires going there. So it doesn't get rid of the traction issues. Debris, for instance, that falls off of cars or off a truck or something, is often moved either off the road or into the center of the lane by car tires. And that's right where it's waiting for you if you're riding up the middle of the lane. Mm-hmm. So tire track choice. So the bits of sand and all, all kinds of things, uh, it collects yeah. there in
0: the center and then on the sides as well.
1: Yeah. That's one point we were going to say, you know, if it starts raining, that's the time, if you can, get off the road, find your rain suit, you know, get some coffee, whatever, let it rain hard for 15 minutes, 20 minutes, then get back on your journey because the rain will have had time to wash away the solvents that's mixed with whatever dripped out of vehicles.
0: And generally those will be things that float on water like oil.
1: Absolutely. And that's the most slipperiest time. Whereas a hard rain, most roads are crowned, there's a little bit of a camber. So maybe the center between the lanes is a little higher than the ditch side of the road. So it gives time for the water to run off and wash away some of that emulsions.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Yep, that makes sense. And I
0: guess that's probably less less dangerous now than what it was before, because cars are much better. I mean, they don't leak oil like they used to. It used to be every car leaked oil. I mean, you had... All your all your seals and stuff were, were just leaky, whereas now they tend to be quite tight. Um yes. so, you, so you get less of it, but it's still a concern though.
1: Yes. And the the key thing is what most riders do, it's starting to rain. Well, what do we do? We speed up so we can get home faster before we get soaked. Mm. <laughs> and that may not end up very well. Right. Okay, what else? Uh I think a little pre-trip, um, and I see it a lot on these organized, uh, adventure rides I go on, but you know, we're still going to ride some street out of a town or city before we get back onto gravel, especially for an adventure rider, your bike is taking more abuse off pavement, gravel roads, um, grit comes up, dust gets in places, um, your tires take more of a beating. Suspension is banging around a lot more off-road and on gravel than it is pavement. But even if you're doing just pavement, we think it's really important to have your bike checked over far more than just the early season riding tune-up, the once a year mechanic look. And it it doesn't. You don't have to be a mechanic. Backyard or a thistle, but you should know how to work a tire gauge and check your tire pressure when they're cold. That's the most accurate reading, as with temperature increase with movement of the tire, ambient temperature your your pressures go up. And what I've seen happen is I prep my bike in my part of Canada, tire pressure included, because I've just put new tires on. I get up to the Yukon and it's almost freezing. The tire pressure is dramatically different just from ambient temperature. Mm. But a pre-trip that I do with my bikes and I make the kids and my staff do, have a look at your bike rather than just where the key goes and how to get on it and take off. You don't want to find the problems on the road or down the road. Find them in the garage or the driveway or the hotel parking lot or campsite before you hit the road.
0: You know what I, what I think though, Clinton though, when it comes to pre-trip checks is first of all, it sounds boring. (laughs) It just sounds like it's boring. But, but the other thing with it is too, if you're not mechanically inclined, it's sort of like, I don't know what I'm looking for, you know? Okay. Tire pressure. I get that, but, but what am I really looking for? And I, I know you've addressed this before. I just thought maybe it'd be a good time to talk about this now is how you talk about looking at your bike more often. Because I know you've said even like when you're done your ride, looking at your bike and, and getting used to
1: what you're seeing, et cetera. Yeah, I got used to suggesting fellow adventure riders on the trips I do check their bike in the morning, at lunch, just a quick check. And then at the end of the day, because what was happening more times than not, you know, I get all suited up. I'm the last guy to leave. I'm the sweep rider. And, uh, Either they have find the problem just as they go to take off or 200 feet down the road, they realize, oh man, I think I got a flat. Yeah. So um, stuff like tire pressure, tire condition. I put the bike up on the center stand if it has one, whatever I'm riding, and I spin the wheels and I'm checking drivetrain. So if it's got a chain, I'm checking for... Does it need lubing? And the best time to do that I like is at lunch or at the end of the day. In the morning, your chain's cold. But with heat, the little rollers and the spaces open up a little. If you don't have an O-ring chain that's got factory lube built into it, then if you do need to lube your chain, maybe after a heavy rain day, uh, do it. After the ride or mid-ride at lunch. And what I do is I put it up the side stand, center stand, sorry. I rotate it by hand. Some people will have it in first gear and run it and loop the chain. That's risky for future piano careers. You don't want your hand down near a fast moving sprocket and chain scenario for obvious reasons. So I roll it by hand in neutral and I'm soaking the links and then I go for lunch. And then I'll have an old rag or some paper towel at the gas station and I encompass my hand around the outside of the chain and slowly rotate it after lunch. Any excess chain lube you get off on the rag or the paper towel was going to serve zero lubricating purpose. You want the lube down in the rollers. Wipe the rest of it off. Because where's that going to go, Jim, on your first 10K of riding? All over your rim and your leg. <laughs> yeah. And chain lube by engineering design is the to get off. You have to use something like WD-40 or some kind of grease breaker to get it off. I like clean back wheels so I can inspect them. I don't want to cover it in chain lube and subsequent dust and dirt. So that's what I do. Uh, I also check the fluids. I check my forks uh, Push them up and down a few times to make sure the fork seals aren't leaking. Uh, Now on big adventure bikes, I buy a product called Fork Skins. And it has a zipper and you encompass the fork seal. And then it has tie wraps top and bottom to make a very tight seal. So mud can't get into the fork system and tear The fork seal, because then you use your fluid and you lose your suspension. So I check that. I'm looking at the rad to make sure it's not full of bugs or moths or dirt and that there's no leaks or little rocks stuck in it that could vibrate and create a problem if it has a rad. So I do kind of a hands on feel and look of my bike to determine if wear and tear has caused any problems. How much time do you spend Uh, on that? uh, You know, in the morning on the adventure bikes, five minutes is all I need.
0: Do the whole thing. So are you lubing the chain in that five minutes? Yes. So you lube the chain, you're checking the tire pressure, you're checking your levels, the levels that you can check, which is generally you're going to be either dipping your your crankcase and then looking at, if you have a cooling system, looking at your reservoir
1: to see where that's at. Wow. Yeah, most of that, like on the BMWs, I can see the coolant reservoir up under beside the fuel tank. Uh, they all have, most bikes I have have view windows now. So it's just get down on your knees. My adventure bike pants have knee pads built into them, which are fantastic, not only for protection, but I can just throw myself down on the ground to do a tire or check oil or stuff.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So my suit's not always that clean but it doesn't hurt my knees. Okay, and so and so, what else are you checking? Um, with throttle, I want to make sure it snaps back. If I have an older bike, maybe a cable clutch, I pull it in and I'm looking to see if any of the finely woven strands of wire have broken off. If they're starting to fray, I want to know about it before you know, I'm going to shift gears and my clutch cable breaks.
0: Mm. So so you're looking for obvious stuff. Cause I mean, the cable of course could break at the bottom. It could break somewhere else, but you're just, you're just yes. trying to spot what you can in a
1: quick once over. Yes. And the idea is I'm finding it. It's safer to find it with the bike cold. So I can look around the rad, and not burn myself on a pipe or something. Mm. And it's safer to find it when the bike's not moving. And you know, I might have a better chance to fix some problem where I am checking it in the morning or at lunch at night rather than on the side of a busy highway or something. Mm-hmm. In the rain, who knows?
0: Do you always check your tire pressure with a tire gauge? Do you have any sort of other little methods you use just to make sure that there's pressure in it?
1: Yeah, you could pick a tire. You know, um, I had a transport truck a few years ago. I've since sold it during COVID. I never used it. but. um I had this bat that I would check the pressure and then you hit the tire with the bat and you get a a resounding thump sound. And if you hit a tire that's low, there's more of a thud sound. It's a different sound when smacking it. So you'll see truck drivers walking along smacking their tires uh, without a tire gauge, because the inner tire on a semi is very hard to get in at, so I would just use the thump. Mm. So with with bikes, you can kick the tire, and and but visually you can tell if you're losing air because there's a wider, flatter profile, of course.
0: But doing a check like that is is certainly something that takes nothing to do every time before you get on the bike. At least you've checked that okay that it's inflated. It may not be the exact pressure with that check, but you can certainly tell that it's got air in it. That it doesn't have some massive leak. And after you do it a lot, you as you said about the sound of the the bat on the tractor trailer tire, you know the feel of it. If you're kicking it, you yes. you, you feel that that pressure, the bounce, the hardness of the wheel you or the tire. You get used to that.
1: Yeah. Now, our dirt bikes at the school, we run 15 pounds of air, mm. which is half, or a little less than half of what I ride on adventure bikes on the road or street bikes. So it's, you've got to, you know, adapt it to what vehicle you're on. But the place to find out that you've got a flat or going flat tire is not when the handling feels wobbly. That's dangerous. Mm-hmm. Check it over. Now, I've had flat tires, you know, on a tire that I checked in the morning. It's just when you picked up a nail or something. But you're trying to find that nail before it's completely flat the next day.
0: Just a quick two-minute break. I've got a couple things I want to tell you about, but stay with us. There's a lot more good stuff coming up. See and be seen. That's the motto at Cyclops Adventure Sports. Cyclops Adventure Sports makes all kinds of LED lighting for motorcycles. It's a rider-owned and operated company, so they know exactly what us riders want and need. And I will tell you, they have a stunning lineup of options for lighting. They purchase Skeena Lights and recently Extreme Dual Sports, so they have even more choices now when you're searching for auxiliary lighting. From incredibly powerful, tiny riding lights, their LED to LED headlight replacements, and their Evo turn signal inserts, which I am so impressed with, the Evo turn signal insert system, basically it turns your your turn signals into driving lights in the front, brake lights in the back, super bright LEDs, and when you touch your brakes in the back, you all of a sudden have this incredibly powerful brake light punching backwards that riders and drivers cannot miss. They have so much more as well. Plug and play systems for CAN bus motorcycles, power distribution systems, Cyclops Adventure Sports. It's a website that you will love spending time looking through all the possibilities for your motorcycle. The bottom line is the better your lighting, the better you can see and be seen. CyclopsAdventureSports.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. CyclopsAdventureSports.com. Can you imagine hiking, let's say, a wet, slippery mountain in running shoes with no tread on them? I don't know what kind of shoe that could be. Maybe it could be a bowling shoe. But you know what the picture I'm trying to paint here. Well, having a set of IMS Products foot pegs on your bike will feel like you just went from hiking that slippery, wet mountain in those bald running shoes to wearing magnets on steel plates. IMS has designed their full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs specifically for that riding style, adventure riding, covering all disciplines of adventure riding. So if you ride open fire roads and long distances, you may prefer the ultra-wide ADV1s and ADV2s. Those huge platforms give you incredible leverage for controlling, especially a loaded adventure bike. They also spread the contact pressure out, giving you a more comfortable riding position for long miles. If you're a more aggressive rider, maybe riding tighter trails, then maybe the Core Enduro Series is your choice. It's a smaller peg than the ADV Series, but larger than stock. It's got an aggressive tooth design that will lock your boot into position and also give you the added leverage and control that you need for your motorcycle. But the staggered tooth design reduces wear on the sole of your boot. All these pegs have incorporated a watershed design which means they're contoured in every spot to prevent mud and debris from sticking to them. So when the going gets real tough, your boot still contacts the peg instead of getting pushed up by packed-in mud and crap. I've run these pegs for years now, and I really believe they're a game-changer for my riding abilities. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. Okay, now we had um, some things that you were going to talk about, maybe some that falls more under the signs and signals, those things that you can watch for, um, that type of thing that we wanted to talk about. Can we, can we get into that now?
1: Yeah. Um, be aware of your own fatigue level, uh, whether you're hot or cold. You know, some of us, I think the term's white line fever. Truckers get it. You know, they got to be in San Francisco in two days. So they want to do a lot of hours. You know, in, in the 50s and 60s, there was a lot of truck driver accidents because of fatigue. They literally fell asleep because the load had to get there. They're being paid per mile or kilometer that they're traveling. So, white line fever is that mental attitude that even though you're tired, you're hungry, you have to pee, you keep on driving. You just follow that white line. And that's how you burn miles. You get miles in. But it's very dangerous. So transportation authorities around the world now limit the number of hours that a truck driver, for instance, can operate. Um, And when I had my, it's called an A license, I could only be operable at work 13 hours a day. So when I filled out my log is what, what time did I get up? You know, how long did it take me to have breakfast? How long did it take? And when did I start my pre-trip? This is all legally required to operate a truck in my province. Mm -hmm. So I think be aware of how you're doing when you're riding just because Your buddies up in front of you, man, when are they going to put that turn signal on? If you're traveling a long time, longer than maybe you're used to, you're not thinking about enjoying the ride. You're thinking, oh my God, when are they going to stop? You keep looking at the kilometers, maybe down at GPS to see how much further. But you can get burnt out. By many things. And I call it a mind altered state. Try not to get there. Mm. You should be clear headed, conscious, not hung over. So be free of drugs and alcohol and, you know, do what you want after the ride. As long as it's legal, (laughs) but not during the ride. And if you're really hung over, you shouldn't be driving anything, but certainly not a motorcycle. If it's hard to put your helmet on because the head's swollen, that's a really dumb place to be because your reaction time, attention span, everything is subpar from what it should be if you're sober and conscious. But other things that can affect your mind altered state, we talked about fatigue, extreme cold. Mm -hmm. Um, You can get to the point where you're starting to shake apparently that's the nervous system trying to warm up your body. You can't stop that shake. That's dangerous again for attention span judgment goes out. uh, So you got to pull over and warm up, you know, get a coffee, stop for a meal. Even if you're out in the middle of nowhere, stop and walk it off, warm up without the wind chill of riding. Um, I've, left my bike in neutral and taken my gloves off and held them over the exhaust pipe. I've uh, done that with boots in the rain when my feet were wet and I was feeling hypothermic. Mm. Uh, exhaust yeah. is very hot.
0: Also, the, the shaking is fatiguing as well. It, it actually wears yeah. you down because it's all your muscles, you know, starting to shake. And um, that, that takes a lot out of you. Besides the yeah. fact that you're you're dangerously close to entering hypothermia, that's that's your warning right yeah. there.
1: You, you can't ride a bike safely. That's just nuts. Yeah. Uh, the other extreme, of course, is really hot temperatures, hot rides. If you're not accustomed to it, like we take uh, Canadians in the winter, early March, you know, within one day, I'm off a snowmobile and I'm on my bike in Baja, Mexico, and that's quite a jump to quite a for change. your body. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it could be 20 below here and it's 30 above there. That's that's a huge temperature difference. Mm, Celsius, and your body needs time. Yeah, Celsius. Your body needs time to acclimatize. But um, if you're not used to extreme heat, period, you're going to have a harder time touring in really hot countries because your body just isn't used to it and it doesn't handle heat. As well. So you've got to hydrate way more than you would at home and have vented gear so you can still wear your gear. Because we know that riding with exposed flesh in extreme heat, hot sun, deep, not only does it sunburn and cook you, you're dehydrated even more mm-hmm. to the point where the beginning of heat stroke is you faint. So now as you're riding along, you're not even conscious anymore. So that's not good. So that is definitely a few ways uh, for mind altered state.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, One that happens in the spring, I've suffered from it myself, is euphoria. Euphoria. Oh, my God, I can't wait to get my bike fired up, put the battery in. You know, the roads are dry finally. It's a little cold. I can't wait to get out there. This euphoric feeling of wanting to ride sometimes translates to our right wrist, Jim. And, you know, our friends in police cars They haven't seen a motorcycle in many parts of the world in the winter. So you're going to stand out a lot more. So that fast, great feeling ride in the spring is going to garner more attention. And it's more dangerous because the roads aren't very good in many parts of Canada and the northern U.S., We use sand or salt or gravel on the roads for traction in the winter. That stuff's still on the road. So being really excited to ride could have negative impact. One last one is depression. You know, we all go through good times, bad times, sad times. I remember in grade 11, The young lady I was dating, which I thought for sure I was going to marry her, Jim, I was in love. She came up to me at lunch and said, "Uh, listen, I don't want to go out with you anymore. And I'm I'm sure it was raining inside my helmet, Jim, on the way home. Hmm. And, you know, should I have been riding? I was so heartbroken and depressed. And uh, so I probably should have. Uh, waited to ride, but I wanted to get out of there. But um, you know, if you are feeling stressed, depressed, the bike or your car is not the safest place, but definitely the bike.
2: Yeah,
1: it it's a mood enhancer for me. Riding, it's therapy for me. You know, my job is a dream job, but there's stressful elements to it. And there's nothing I like better than getting away on the bike. And I don't have that system where I can take phone calls in my helmet. I don't want to talk to anybody. I just want to ride. You want it like all to yourself. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, there's sometimes a couple of voices in my head, Jim. I don't need to talk to anybody else. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but I think you've got to be in the right mindset to be a safe motorcyclist. You can't be all stressed out, wondering, you know, which you're in a different country, a different city you're touring. That can be really stressful, navigating, finding where you're supposed to camp or hotel. And that distraction of stress takes away your focus of safety for operating the bike in traffic. Mm -hmm. So we got to have a good headspace.
0: So okay so um like what are some of the other things that we can talk about as far as um trying to spot something that um maybe isn't as obvious that can help us prevent any sort of issue.
1: Yeah. Uh, we touched on it a bit Jim but I think we can elaborate. In traffic I think it's really important to have your head up and your brain working like a chess player looking at what others are doing on the road ahead of you. Could be pedestrians, you know, the kid with the ball. Is he going to lose control of that ball? He looks about five. Is he going to dart out in front of me? Mm. I see a guy walking his dog. It's not on a leash. Could that dog, I'm sure it's well behaved, but could it see a cat or a squirrel and dart out in front of me? So those are the kind of things that are wrapping, rolling around in my head as I'm driving, riding, is watching what others are doing? And could that potentially affect me? So you're kind of looking for what the story is ahead of you and you try to anticipate what could happen. So you're not clairvoyant, but with experience, you can see, you know what, that aggressive driver that's passing everybody, when I get up near them, if I do, I get to watch that red truck because He's cut off other people, and you know what? His turn signal must have been broken, Jim. He wasn't using it. Right. So how do you know if he's going to cut you off or not? But if you're aware and you're watching for that, I'll back off. I don't want to get near that red truck because the guy's a nut. If, you know, a vehicle pulls over just as you were coming up on them, are they just pulled over to take a phone call? something go wrong, or are they setting up to pull a U-turn, maybe without a turn signal? And not spotting you coming up because you're on a motorcycle. Exactly. And that happens on the statistics that I'd done is on a straight road, there's no turns left or right. The motorcyclist hits the driver's door side of the car. How did that happen? Because the car pulled a U-turn right in front of the motorcycle. Mm -hmm. So that's really important to kind of anticipate. When I see brake lights go off down the road in front of me, I'm trying to think of why. Oh, I see there's somebody at the crosswalk. That's why they put the brakes on. I'm going to back off way back here. So I'm trying to leave myself an out in case something I've predicted happens. Right. Yeah. And those brake lights could
0: tell you a deer is in the ditch or a cat is running across the road or something that, that could end up affecting you when you get up there. Whereas if you just yeah. ignore it, you know you it makes perfect sense. I love the way you say chess player. And I know you told me that before about it's almost like a chess game. And the better you are at that chess game, which we can all learn, the better you are at it, the safer you are as a rider.
1: Absolutely. So you know, a lousy chess player is reacting to the move the opponent did right then. And they've been planning the checkmate six moves ago. Mm-hmm. A good chess player, maybe 26 moves ago. So that's, and how do you learn these skills? It comes with experience, but reading, listening to your show, watching YouTube videos, talking at coffee with more experienced riders. Um, there's a A lot of ways to pick up these in-traffic sensibilities and predict what's going to happen. And that way you're more prepared for when it does happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've always told people, ride as if you're invisible. Because trust me, sometimes you are. Mm -hmm. That's the most common expression the car driver says after cutting a motorcycle off. You know, I'm sorry, buddy, I didn't see you. Mm -hmm. We got our headlights on. (laughs) You well, know, they're but, they're so fixated
0: yeah. on other vehicles, and and I I've often thought about this and think you know while we're while we drive along, we don't notice how many mailboxes there, and I think I've said this before about how many mailboxes or how many telephone poles we've passed or how many you know boxes we've passed on the side of the road. You but you do spot the vehicles as, as there because you're trained to look for vehicles. You're you're looking yes. for any sort of vehicle, but the motorcycle. I mean, you may be in a place where they're around all year, but there's certainly not as many motorcycles as there are cars. So I, no. I think it's fairly easy to, to miss that or, or misinterpret the headlight for, we've talked about that before, but for being farther away.
1: Yeah. Great analogy. Um, you know, I bought an orange Hornet sport boat, this old AMC it was my first car. And I think it was fairly rare, but as soon as I got one, Oh my God, they were everywhere. Yeah, I saw right. five or six a day <laughs> because an orange AMC Hornet sportabout was now important to me. Yeah. My eyeball saw them the week before I bought that car, but our brain is amazing an organism it is. It can't possibly process the visual input that the eyeball provides. So when the vision goes back to the part of the brain that interprets it, it decides what's important to you. So we've talked about it before. A car driver, truck driver is looking for cars and trucks. They're not necessarily looking for motorcyclists because it isn't, I don't want to say it isn't important to them, but it doesn't hold a visual value. Mm. And what's interesting in the statistics I've studied A motorcyclist who's driving their car or truck does not cut off an oncoming motorcyclist. And why is that? They see them. Yeah. Their eyeball picks it up and their brain says, that's a motorcycle. We love motorcycles. I I am a motorcyclist. So they don't cut them off. So if you ride as if you're invisible, you can expect that you're going to get cut off because they don't see you. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, well, what else do you have? Uh, I love the point you jotted down, Jim, about shadows. You know, big trees, buildings can block a setting or rising sun. And that puts you into shadow. And the eyeball adjusts to the brightness of light to allow more in or less in. And that's hard for Drivers to see us in changing light patterns. So that's something to be aware of.
2: Mm.
1: And another way I use the sun is if I see my shadow in front of me, my bike and myself, my shadows in front of me, that means the setting sun is in the eyes of oncoming traffic. And in many parts of the world, commuting home for work or to work, the position of the sun is low on the horizon, low in the sky, which means we're affected more by the setting sun or rising sun, you know, depending you're going east or west. So you can anticipate that driver coming towards you having a harder time seeing you. And it's a contentious issue, but I personally believe... The really good LED headlights that cars and motorcyclists now have, a lot of people say, ride with your high beams on during the day. I disagree. In many instances, that high beam is so hot and so intense, an oncoming vehicle's operator cannot discern shape or color behind it. Because it's just so bright. It's mm-hmm. almost blinding. Yeah. So I prefer low beam in traffic myself. And high beam, of course, at night, as long as there's a vehicle not coming towards me. Yep. Uh, another one I used commuting, multi-lane. As It didn't work on a cloudy day, Jim. But on a sunny day, you can sometimes see the shadow of the vehicle coming up on you. Before you see the vehicle in your peripheral vision or your mirror. Oh, right. Yeah. Depending on the position of the sun in the vehicle. So shadows can have a a big impact on our safety if you're aware of them.
0: Yeah. And even on a cloudy day, on a cloudy day, if you're following vehicles, you can often see vehicles in front of them and get an idea of how close the traffic is in front of them because you'll see a shadow and it's usually on both sides on a cloudy day because the light coming through the clouds
1: works like a big light box. Yes Um, exactly and I noticed the cars behind me um, you can often see their shadow before you see the car in mm, your mirror if they're in a blind spot because the shadow makes the vehicle much wider visually and that can help you So. Yeah, good tips on shadows.
0: So that's part of that chess game that you're talking about. That's part of that it following is. what's going on and understanding what's happening even though it's out of your line of sight in front of you. You still have an idea how much traffic is up there. Yeah, which can tell you how fast the vehicle in front of you may end up stopping if they're if they're tailgating a vehicle in front of them, which is
1: why I take it into consideration. Yeah. No, well, that's a great tip. Uh another tip, it doesn't cause a lot of motorcycle accidents. But when it does, they're pretty serious, is debris on the road. You know, it's busy traffic. There's a lot of cars pulling trailers, maybe from the cottage. They're going to the dump. They hit a bump or a pothole and part of the load falls off. Other debris is you don't see it as much in, you know, our era now. But when I started driving and riding, uh, there was a lot more muffler shops, Jim. I think they must be stainless steel now. Like that Toyota truck I talked to you about, it had 400,000 kilometers on it, and it was the original exhaust. Yeah. That's unbelievable for Canon.
0: It's one of the rare things that have actually improved, but
1: yeah, I agree. We, yeah. we did see more muffler bits on the road before. But we still see chunks of tires, and you'll see more of it in hotter climates. Uh, you want to look at a selection of used tires, go to Mexico. They're all along the sides of the road and sometimes on the road. So extreme heat, if your tire is underinflated, it heats up more. And if you've bought retreads for your truck, for instance, I owned my tractor, but I could have, if I wanted to, I could have got a job pulling trailers for other companies. And trailer tires for economics, and they're perfectly safe, good traction. They'll use a retread, especially in certain parts of the world. Hard tires, it's very prevalent to have retreads. So someone in a small factory will glue a laminate, uh, laminate a new tread on a bald tire. And if it's not properly inflated or maybe not properly adhered with the glue in hot temperatures and at higher speeds, it'll delaminate and the whole tread can come off. So if it's a truck tire, the tread coming off weighs about 160 pounds Mm. and it's doing 100 kilometers an hour. It's going to take you right off the bike. Yeah. Never mind wipe you out. So that's another reason not to travel behind trucks, just in case.
0: And part of that chess move, you can be aware that often when those tires are about to let go, you'll hear an odd sound. So you hear that whack, 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 whack sound, yes. like some sort of odd thumping sound that tells you there's something wrong with this
1: vehicle. Yes. And the driver, to no fault you know, they're, they're 60 feet away in a cab with Tammy Wynette playing on the radio. They don't hear the thump, 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 or they may not feel it when they have 22 tires. One of them's breaking loose. Mm. Yeah, so I don't drive beside trucks or behind them. I get by them or I back way off, let them go. And, um, you know, different countries we might tour in may not have the same standard of living that we're so lucky to enjoy in many parts of the country. So when I was in South Africa, I saw a lot of vehicles with no license plate, you know, baling wire, holding the fender on no mm-hmm. windshields. So I didn't want to ride behind them. No offense to the people. That's the best they could do with their standard of living. But that vehicle is inherently dangerous to a motorcycle. If something falls off, you know, questionable tire tread, questionable brakes. um, I happily pulled way over to the right and let those vehicles pass me. Mm -hmm. So that's something to be aware of. If we're we're out on roads that aren't the roads we grew up on, there's going to be a different level of safety for vehicles, for instance.
0: Well, that's a good point.
1: What else do you have? Another one that I think is important is target fixating. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the car that pulls out in front of you, if you don't have kind of practiced collision avoidance skills, emergency braking, swerving, many riders, even though there was 12 feet in front of the car that stopped. They've cut you off and then they stopped. There was 12 feet in front of their front bumper that you could have changed direction and completely gone by the car. In a lot of the police officer discussions I had with about motorcycles and car accidents, they'd say it was so weird. The bike was almost in the back seat of the car. They didn't, you know, change direction. They didn't swerve. And I think that's shock and target fixation. Mm-hmm. You will go where you look. And I've seen it a thousand times teaching people how to ride. You never train in an area that has obstacles, trees, use pylons. Uh, and go i right, see because they're going to
0: go right into the tree every time
1: yeah, you'll have one tree in a great big field and they'll hit it.
0: <laughs> you target, <laughs> fix it. You go where you look. We've all had this though. I mean, ride along the trail and spot something and it's easy to miss, but I watch yep. it. And next thing I go over it or, or glance off and think, what am I doing?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. It's human nature. Yeah. Uh, you can train yourself not to So with collision avoidance, what we trained for over 20 years for a street training we did, you'd have a bunch of pylons, and you'd have pylons set up as escape lanes. So the obstacle is in the middle. The instructor would either lift their left arm up or their right arm, pointing in the direction that the oncoming student could go. So it gives Mm. them a choice of left or right escape lanes. And oftentimes, people would look right at the instructor. And I've jumped out of the way dozens and dozens of times. And you have to be cagey, Jim. You can't jump too early Mm. because you've used your leg jump energy and then they still follow you. So you got (laughs) to wait almost to the last second, and bend your knees, get that soiled spring ready, and then leap. And they'll blow right through where you were standing. And that's very scary. So be aware of it. But you can train yourself, turn your head. So the center of your eyeball, which has the best clarity of focus, peripheral vision has no detailed clarity. You'll see shapes, you'll know it's A car, but you can't tell what kind of car it is. Move your face, move your head so the center of the eyeball is looking at your escape lane, not at the thing that cut you off and stopped.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Right. Another uh, target
0: fixation example that that I always think of is this one that I had, which to me was like the perfect setup. It was, um, I think it was two people on the side of the road and on the far side of the road away from me and they were bent down doing something at the at the side of the road, which I couldn't quite discern as I came up. And I, I sort of, I got fixated on them slightly because I didn't understand what they were doing. And it's and part of my process of, of, you know, the chess game, right? There's vehicles coming the other way that's sort of going by them. But what I missed at that distance until I got closer was what they were doing is trying to call the dog back that was on the other side oh, of the road. No. My side of the road. And had that dog, you know, ran out in front of me, of course, you know what's going to happen. I mean, I spotted it in time enough, but I did find myself fixating on that target. just a weird thing. And it was at a weird spot in the road. So that's a type of target fixation that can also mess you up. Yeah,
1: absolutely. That's a good one. I hadn't thought of that. Another one I was thinking, Jim, is so people can see us. I think the five dollar word is conspicuity. We used mm. to talk about it at rider training. Being conspicuous is so the most common color at you know, tomorrow I'll be setting up at a bike show, and it's way better in modern times now, but uh, many motorcyclists wear black. Mm-hmm. It's cool. It's not actually cool, it's hotter, but you're going to blend in. To the roadways for street riders, which are predominantly black-colored pavement, very dark, sun-bleached, it's a little different, but you'll blend in more. It makes you look thinner, though. Oh, it does. That's true. I don't have to worry about that. I'm pretty skinny. (laughs) But I have a complete black, uh, it's a BMW Enduro guard suit. It's one of those waterproof suits with a lot of zippers for vents. Mm Mm-hmm. And what I love about it, it's got a spine protector, hip pads, knee pads, elbow pads, and a lot of pockets. Um, But it's jet black, horrible as far as conspicuity. So I wear either a yellow or an orange fluorescent safety vest, a little vest that goes over the coat and my boots have retro-reflective tape on them. So side-on headlights will pick them up. The back of my helmet's got retro-reflective stickers. So at night, I'm a little more visible as well. But um, I really believe it's helped drivers see me. Now, I really don't care if they have to pull over and throw up. After they see me, I just want to be seen. hmm now, many of my friends uh, mock me. Oh, you should hear them, Jim. Even my sons mock me. <laughs> I said to them last week, you know, I don't remember mocking my father as much as you chuckleheads mock me. <laughs> and my eldest son didn't miss a beat. He said, yeah, but I think we got more material to work with.
0: <laughs> oh, he's quick. He's quick. I yeah. like that.
1: got <laughs> me right up. But... Um, So the buddies I go on tour with, I don't think I've ever seen one of these retro reflective vests. Uh, I ordered special order and bought an orange fluorescent uh, BMW GS helmet, like an adventure helmet. I've never seen another one. I don't think it was a big seller. But I want to stand out in traffic. I don't care how people think I look. I don't want them coming and visiting me in hospital with my leg up on a sling and traction. Mm -hmm. I want to be seen. Now, it's no guarantee, but it's another little part of my armor of riding is being more visible. I still get cut off sometimes. I have a buddy who rides a police bike in good weather in Toronto. So Metro Toronto Harleys are white. He has all kinds of lights and he's told me, you know, you can wear that vest, Clinton, but I'm here to tell you, I've been cut off on my police bike with the sirens and all the lights flashing. (laughs) And, you know, he'll pull that person over because he can do that. We can't. Mm -hmm. And they'll say, I'm sorry, I didn't see you. So if he can't be seen. (laughs) Yeah, that really says something, doesn't it? My little orange helmet's not going to help me, but it's one more little part of me trying to survive and be safe out there. So you can do it with your bike as well. You know, in the old days, motorcyclists were the only ones who had their headlights on. But now daytime running lights are pretty prevalent around the world. So we don't stand out as much. But um, you can buy kits that transform your front or rear turn signals into daytime running lights. Hmm. They're orange. They make you a little more conspicuous than a light bulb that's not on. And then hmm. it flashes, of course.
0: Yeah, Cyclops has one. Uh, one of our advertised Cyclops has one. It's, it's an amazing system. The rear lights that, that they turn into brake lights for you, the turn yes. signals... And man, it is incredibly bright. Like it, it just commands attention. I see it in the signs behind me, in my mirrors. Like for, yes. you know, way, way back there, when I just tap the brakes, and it's like that grabs attention.
1: Exactly, and uh, there's a few other systems out there that are over and above what comes stock on the motorcycle. Uh, my bikes, for instance. The BMWs have fantastic lights, especially this new LED stuff. Have you seen those, Jim? Where when I'm leaning over in a corner on uh, the bike I had last year and the new 1300 I pick up tomorrow, it's got a corrective headlight, so it doesn't mm. bend with my lean. It bends up to show the road.
0: It's it's it's, it's like so it's a- keeping the beam level to the road all the time. I've I've seen it. Um, I've read about it rather, but I've not seen it Excuse physically. Me.
1: Yeah, so there's systems that we can add as options to our bike. That was a more expensive feature, but it sounded safer to me.
0: You also said about riding in the in the left track. That's one of those things that stands out more. But but we could also move ourselves, couldn't we, to become yes. you know maybe a little more obvious. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, a little wobble, six inches left and right. To the visual plane of an oncoming driver, they see that wiggle rather than a perfectly straight oncoming beam of light. Mm -hmm. Because we're attracted to that excitement of the light. So um, you can dip your bars a little back and forth approaching intersections. You know, not dramatically, you'll be pulled over. But the idea is, as you say, tire track track. Alterations make your headlight change, and and it's those slight things that hopefully
0: other drivers are doing the same thing as you, which which most people do to some degree. Maybe not not, not near as much as what we do as motorcycle riders, but they are working out the chest gain themselves. And when they see you do something strange like that coming up to an intersection, you all of a sudden command attention to them. Like well, what what is going on here?
1: why did that light just swing over to the side? No, exactly. Um, I know one thing. I have that weird bike, gym with two front wheels, the Yamaha Nikon GT. Mm -hmm. I think I've talked about it before. And wow, does it gain attention? It's got good lights, but there's two front wheels. Yeah, that's right. And out in traffic. So maybe on that, I'm less likely getting cut off but maybe the likelihood of somebody target fixing and hitting me goes up. Yeah, that's right. I They're couldn't get my eyes me. off those dual wheels. Yeah. <laughs> I thought there was a second wheel.
0: <laughs> well, the the other thing that we were going to talk about that we didn't touch on was, was the blind
1: hills and corners. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. Um, what I'm, I pass on to newer riders. You're out in the country and there's just two lanes, one going south, one going north. In the country especially, the soft shoulder is gravel because it's there isn't the municipal budget to pave the road all the way to the ditch, like often is on city streets. So if you're riding along, going south, and you see a bicyclist coming north, And you're cresting a hill. I think you can assume that car drivers coming towards you, going the same direction as the bicyclist, are going to pull into your lane rather than slow down or stop behind the much slower bicycle's pace. Mm -hmm. So if you're on your bike in the left tire track, when I see a bicycle, I move over to the right tire track because I'm anticipating that. Traffic following the bicyclist will come into my lane to avoid hitting them,
2: mm-hmm.
1: if that makes sense. So yeah. on blind corners, you see a bicycle, you can anticipate a car coming over the hill is going to come into your lane. And they may come over into your lane without a blind spot on a hill. They just do it as a matter of practice. hmm and a lot of people get upset about bicyclists. And I'm not sure about the rest of the world, but in Ontario, it's absolutely legal and it's in the Highway Traffic Act that two bicyclists can ride side by side. And so car drivers get angry at that because they're taking up a little bit of the lane, but that that's the law. So you have to pass them safely and give them a wide berth. And in congested traffic, that's hard to do.
0: Yeah, that takes up a lot of space. I mean, that, that is, I didn't know that was law, or that was legal to do. Yeah.
1: It, it's come up in communities around. I live in a lot of resort or retirement communities, the nearby ones to my hometown. And there's hundreds of bicyclists in these clubs and they're seniors. They're out getting exercise. They're enjoying the weather and they'll ride in packs Side by side, mm. 10 of them. And you've got to be very, very careful and respectful.
0: Well, and you of, don't want to tick off a pack of seniors. I mean, you don't want them they coming don't. at you. That's... It,
1: they have a lot of votes, Jim. <laughs> uh, uh, blind Corners, um, there's a famous road. I've only done it once in the United States in Tennessee called Deal's Gap, Tale of the Dragon. Mm. This is Mecca, this Tale of the Dragon place in Tennessee. And it's only, I think it's 19 miles long, or is it 11 miles and 319 curves? Something like that. Hmm. A listener can correct me. But they're very tight corners, very slow speed. I think it's 30 miles an hour. But all of the hot dogs who want to really get into cornering and they don't have a racetrack, They use this public road. So when I did it, um, you know, you want to try cornering, but the faster you go on a motorcycle, the more you have to lean it over, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're leaned right over on your side of the road and on a blind corner, there's oncoming traffic in your lane, that's very hazardous. Because to hammer on the brakes, that stands the bike up. And it might go straight then and not go off, not be able to make it around the corner. You go off the road or you hit. So I'm always, as I've matured, I'm more cautious now on blind corners. If I can't see what's coming towards me, I'll change my tire track anticipating that drivers aren't going to be able to make it around that corner on their side of the road.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: and the
0: other one I'm thinking of is you'll often find that in the country people drive down the middle of the road so you come yeah. up to that blind hill or the blind corner and you find yourself facing a vehicle that could be moving in a good clip right in the center of the road I mean we, we know of a rider who, who died this way
1: yes uh, my buddy did who was a journalist Rob Harris and that was gravel but country road with a lot of gentle hills not really steep and sadly uh he met a pickup truck that was on their side of the road where rob was allegedly kind of in the middle of the road not a left tire track he was right in the center so when he locked up the brake in a panic uh no abs the abs was off the front tire slid out and he met the bumper mm-hmm. which sadly broke his neck but um mm-hmm on gravel there's really only like three tire tracks and each where the driver sits is usually in the center of the lane when they're going both directions so i agree with what you say they're kind of going right up the middle yeah so we've got to be aware of that also i call it when i'm teaching the rob harris rule because i you know some goods got to come out of rob passing and i've taught it for Eight years, nine years now. So thousands of times.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. And what, what I tend to do when I'm topping a hill like that, anytime there's a blind hill on the gravel, I, I move right over. I know I can yes. keep my lane and everything. We can talk about holding our lane and everything, but that's those times I just give over and think, I'm not taking a chance because I've I've met vehicles coming right down the middle more than once. At uh, one time in particular, very, very close. And and I was thinking that had I had it been just in my spot, in my lane, I, I probably wouldn't be here talking to you right now.
1: Yes. And I think of the stupid stuff I used to do as a kid. I um you know skill is part of it, learning more, <laughs> but luck has been a big part of my survival too. <laughs> I I go through the trails I'm lucky to live in the same place pretty well my whole life. And the speed I used to go around blind corners on a piece of junk dirt bike with virtually no brakes, no suspension. I couldn't have stopped. I didn't know how to swerve uh, if there'd been someone coming the other way. But somehow I survived, mostly unscathed. Uh I did have a little file at the hospital gym. And a lot (laughs) of the uh, people in Emerge would say, we haven't seen you in a while. What have you done this time?
0: <laughs> or maybe you're getting to be a better rider. They haven't seen you in a while. Yes, <laughs> learning some right. skills. <laughs> oh, that's great, Clinton. Well, do, do we have anything that you want to finalize this with?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm. The only thing I would um, I would love to impress upon people for like street riding survival is have patience, take extra time, slow down near intersections because that's what gets us. If you're doing 65 kilometers an hour in a 50, that little bit of 15 kilometers an hour extra speed could mean the difference of you not being able to swerve or stop in time. Mm -hmm. And that could be the difference between your own cooking and hospital food
0: and uh, that's great. Thanks so much. Always so much fun to sit down and talk about this
1: stuff with you. Our pleasure, Jim. All the best. We'll talk soon.
0: Was Clinton Smout from Smart Adventures in Ontario, Canada. They do rider training of all kinds from ATV to Stummobile and of course motorcycles both dirt bikes and adventure bikes. They are a BMW certified training facility. Their website is smartadventures.ca We've got some photos and links in the show notes as usual on our website adventureriderradio.com Well, that about wraps up another episode of adventure rider radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it special. Thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. And of course you thank you very much for listening and being a part of this. Now I hope you can get out there and ride your bike before you do though. Let me just say that these, the show is built on a model of advertising and listener support. We could really use you to drop by our website and click on the support button. Just have a look. That's all I'm asking. Anything $50 or more gets you shout out on our raw show Anything $10 or more gets you adventure rider radio stickers. And we would really, really appreciate it if you'd check out our patron option that way you're you're there for us each week and it can be any amount i mean and i always say like think about what you get with a cup of coffee the pleasure you get from the cup of coffee the money you spend on it and then what you're getting from adventure rider radio that we produce here every week for you and by the way we are coming up on our 10-year anniversary in just a couple of months so you really want to stay tuned and and listen for more things happening with that 10-year anniversary anyway i hope you can get out there and ride your bike my name is jim martin i will talk to you next week Hi, this
1: is Charlie Borman, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. <laughs>